Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. All right, and with that, let's get into the Word of God. We're going to have Randy and Serena come up and read from our passage in Luke 23, if you want to turn to Luke 23. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thanks, guys. Why don't you pray with me? Fathers, we spend one final week looking at the cross. We're praying for understanding. And again, with humility, we pray, asking for transformation in our lives. God, we don't want to just learn new things. Although that's fun, that's not why we're here. We're here, Jesus, because we have a deep need for you, and God, because we long to be made like your son. Father, we want you to send your spirit in a moment like this to transform us more and more into the image of your beloved son, Jesus. And so God, speak to us right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's been wisely said that for us, for all of us, we were born with an expiration date, and I'll save the the comparison, because it'd be a crude one uh, to a milk carton or something like that. We're, we're different than that, and that our value system is totally separate from that. But although a crude illustration, it's simple enough to give a visual to it, that you and I, we were born with an expiration date, that our lives will inevitably all come to an end, which means for every person, we'll have a last meal, every person will have a last breath, and every person will have some sort, then, of a last statement. And in many ways, what we say in the end is a real insight into what we were in life, what we really stood for, what we really lived for, what we most valued is oftentimes what's found coming out of our lips at the end of our life, especially for those who are given the gift and the privilege of knowing that their life is coming to an end, knowing that this might very well be my last statement. And for many people, their final statement, it really does become then a pure expression of the heart. And at the reality of death setting in, the thing they care most about is what's often found coming off their lips. I read about a man years ago who had a very successful restaurant business. He'd established restaurants all over the country in many different places. And when his life was almost over from his deathbed, when his family gathered nearby, he just quietly whispered, slice the ham thin. And there's nothing really wrong with what he said. I mean, it, it was clear all of a sudden in that moment that the thing that was most important for him, the greatest passion of his life, might have been proven in that moment to be lunch meat. And, and maybe there is a problem with that. It was Conrad Hilton, he's the founder of Hilton Hotels and, and the father of the famed Paris Hilton. He, on his deathbed, his final statement to his family was, and I quote, leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. 
but before he was to be hanged uh, for being a spy on the British, the last words of American patriot Nathan Hale, Hale excuse me, were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. You see, so much of the time, a final statement gives an opportunity for someone to express what's most valuable to them. For some, though, their last words are incomplete because they run out of time before being able to express their heart. It was Mark Twain who reportedly spoke to his daughter at his death bedside, and when he said to her, looking at her, he said, goodbye if we meet, and then after a brief pause, he fell asleep never to awake again. Some statements, last words, are honest. It was the words of Frank Sinatra, where he addressed his daughter as well, where he simply looked at her and said, I'm losing. Some are ironic, last statements are. It was a Union Army general in the American Civil War named John Sedwick, whose last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And moments later, he was killed by a Confederate sharpshooter at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Some statements, they're humorous. It was Oscar Wilde who said, either the wallpaper goes or I do. Some are angry. It was Sigmund Freud who was quoted as saying, this is absurd, this is absurd, this is absurd. Some are incredibly heartbreaking. For Chris Farley, he was my favorite comedian as a middle school boy because of his volume and probably his his tacky crassness. But as a little boy, a, a junior higher, I loved Uh, this character and thought he was so full of life and humor, but if you know how his life came to an end, his last words were spoken to a prostitute who was leaving his hotel room after a a week-long drug binge, where he said to her, caught on security cam footage, please don't leave me, please don't leave me, and then collapsed, dying to a fatal heart attack. As Brad Delp, the lead singer from the famous 1970s band Boston, before committing suicide, he clipped the, the, the statement, his last words onto his shirt that simply read, I am a lonely soul. It was Queen Elizabeth I in 1603 who had written her last statement as well. She wrote, all my possessions for a moment of time. You see, some last words, though, they're beautiful. They're just beautiful. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist and preacher of old, he, he said this with his dying words. He said, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, and God is calling me. Reminds me of the last words of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. They're recorded for you in the book of Acts. While being stoned to death, he said his final statement, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not charge them with this sin. It was Joseph Addison, the famous Christian of the 1700s, who called his wayward stepson to his bedside and simply said, see in what peace a Christian can die. You see, we wrap up our series today looking at the final words of Jesus from the cross, the series that we've entitled The Crux that's carried us through the final seven statements of Jesus from the cross, reaching the final one this morning. And you'll remember in our series, we've talked about how our English words crucial and crux both actually come from the Latin word for cross, because the Latin word for cross is crux. You see, our use and definitions of the words crucial and crux are shaped and defined by the fact that the crucial, the central theme, the crux of the whole of the Christian message is the cross itself. The cross is that crucial central thing that could not be removed or Christianity itself would cease to exist. And now we've reached the end of it all, the the final words of Jesus himself, where he says, you just heard it read to you, Father, into your hands... 
I commit my spirit. You can't help but notice that in the midst of this tormenting scene, this horrendous, terrible torture that's taking place, what you hear is not a tormented man. You hear a man at rest in this moment. I mean, don't you hear there's, there's a quiet confidence in Jesus' statement. There's a unique combination, it seems like in this moment, of Jesus almost seeming fully in control and yet fully in submission as well. As he simply says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus, by this time, he spent six hours on the cross. He's a man's man. He was a carpenter, and there was no such thing as Home Depot back in his day. If you wanted to make a table, you went out into the woods, you chopped your own tree down, you dragged it back to a workshop and began to sand it and cut it in order to fashion what you needed. One of the terms that's used there for describing him as a carpenter, one of the translations is a stonemason, not just a woodworker, but someone who worked with stone. And if Jesus is building retaining walls along the rocky hillside of Nazareth, his hometown community, for the first 30 years of his life, then I want you to know he was a man's man. This was not some wimpy, puny individual who just suddenly succumbs to six hours of torment and he's gone. No, it it was a shocking thing. They were astounded, in fact, Pilate was, that Jesus died so quickly, that his life came to an end as quick as it had. Remember, he'd sent a soldier to check on Jesus, who then would look and see that he was gone, and to be sure, they'd place a, or thrust a spear through his side, watching blood and water come out. Jesus left quicker than anyone assumed that he would. In fact, history makes it clear that crucifixion was torment. It was a slow and drawn-out process. The American Medical Journal released a very interesting document years ago where they looked at ancient historians' work and then paired it with their modern understanding of medicine to write about what happens to someone specifically for them to speculate, what happens to Jesus on the cross. And what they wrote in that journal is they, they said this, although the Romans did not invent crucifixions, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering, it was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually was reserved only for slaves, for foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Death by crucifixion was, in every sense of the word, excruciating. It's interesting, the Latin word, it's actually a Latin word, excruciating is, the word means, by definition, out of the cross. The idea is that there's some pain that's so severe that it's reserved only for those, only those who experience the cross find that they, they've experienced a pain that comes out of that experience that surpasses anything else that anyone has ever endured. Again, according to their research of the American Medical Journal, the, and I quote, the length of survival on a cross generally ranged from three or four hours to as long as three or four days, depending upon the severity of the scourging that one would receive before the cross. Another document I read years ago referred to a crucifixion that lasted for 13 days where the person actually died having been eaten by jackals and vultures. But Jesus shocked everyone when after just six hours on the cross, three of them being spent in the bright morning sun, three of them in absolute, you might remember, total and complete miraculous darkness, Jesus would breathe his last. As creation itself seemed to mourn the loss of the Prince of Heaven who came here and in that moment had the world turn their back on him, even creation itself seemed to look away in the darkness of those three hours. Now how and why did he die so quickly? 
the American Medical Journal, they suggest, well, that it's either a combination of things. It's that it was either the exhaustion, the blood loss, his body going into shock, slowly suffocating, maybe even acute heart failure. They say maybe it's just a conglomeration or what Jesus died of, they speculate, is cardiac rupture. When they saw blood and water come out of him because of the extreme dehydration, dehydration Jesus had suffered, the only reservoir of water in his system was no longer sitting inside his belly, but it would have encapsulated his heart with a sack of water around his heart. And when they pierced his side and blood and water came out, as we've talked before, it's very interesting, it's, it almost feels poetic that it's birthing fluid as, as God is birthing a new family. But the blood and water, some medical professionals will point to and say it's a sign that his heart had ruptured and burst. And because of that, both blood and water are what came out in that moment. And maybe those things are true. But I believe that the main reason Jesus passed so quickly is found in the Gospels itself, where it says in Matthew 27 that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Or in John 19, that he gave up his spirit. The idea is that Jesus finished his work and felt that there was no need to stay, and so he chose to depart. In fact, isn't that what he had just said the last week we were together? When he said, it is finished, he made it clear everything that the Father had given him to do was complete, and because of that, he breathes his last and gives up his spirit. In fact, Jesus' own words were recorded for us in John chapter 10, where he had said it this way, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Jesus was clear. No one would take his life. He would willingly offer and surrender it. And that's what we find in this final breath and final statement where he simply says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Okay, now what I want to do quickly with you then is I want to look at then, then in this final statement, what are the things that we're meant to note about how it ended, how Jesus' life came to a close? And there's three things I just want to point out to you about this final breath in this final statement of Jesus. And the first is very simple. The first, it's worth writing down, though, and that's that this is an expression of trust. The first thing worth noting is that Jesus' life will end with the ultimate expression of trust. His final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, are an expression of, tr of trust, and they are a quotation of Psalm chapter 31, verse 5. It's a psalm that's written and attributed to David. And it was written as he prayed with an expression of trust that God would redeem him after praying that God would protect him. He's, he's facing all sorts of uncertainty, but he's crying out in faith in that psalm, beginning with him saying, let me not be ashamed. When he's saying that, what he's praying, David is, is don't let my enemies triumph over me. In fact, let me read to you the, at least the first five verses of Psalm 31. Psalm chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. The idea is don't let my enemies win in this moment. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. And here's the statement. 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. When Jesus quotes this psalm, he subtracts from it. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the second half of that statement is what Jesus subtracts, but that everyone who is present, I believe, would have known. For you have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. There is a subtraction, but also an addition. The addition is that Jesus personalizes this beautifully and that he stops for the moment and says first, Father. Remember, we've previously talked about one of the statements Jesus makes from the cross is the only time we see him addressing God as simply God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus now, in confidence, not forsaken, that as God would redeem him, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In John 16, Jesus had said, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for my father is with me. There was a moment in time where Jesus seemingly, he seemed to be separated from, even abandoned by his father. It makes all of us gasp as we look at that moment in time. But now he's praying in complete confidence that his father has been with him all along. Historians point something out to us that's really interesting about this statement, and I don't want you to miss this. They're very clear in telling us that this was quoted, this statement was, verse 5 of Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit, O God who will redeem me. This was quoted by children, Jewish children in pious Jewish households back in ancient times, even in the first century, each night as a bedtime prayer. Think of this. Each night, children all throughout the land reciting this just as young people being taught by their parents to pray into your hands, I commit my spirit as they climb into bed each night. In fact, if you have a study Bible on your lap today, it might even have that as a footnote in its margin because it's something that so many have referenced over the years. I mean, we could say that we today have a similar thing, maybe that you learned as a kid like I did. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. That was very compelling. It's a weird choice if you ask me to have your kids recite at bedtime. She's like, oh, I know you're scared, so let's take a moment to pray this invisible being that if you die tonight, he'll come and take your soul. And now go to bed and stay in your own bed. Don't come into my bed. Not very effective. But the simple prayer, think about it, that Jewish children would utter at bedtime was so simple, so beautiful. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Think about it. If this is in fact quoted nightly by children throughout homes in cities and in, in the hillsides all throughout the land, then we picture Jesus as just a young boy learning this prayer probably from his own mother who would teach him just as a boy that each night together we pray, into your hands I commit my spirit. And now Jesus, at the end of his life, what we find is that the first prayer he's learned will become the last prayer he utters from his lips while on planet Earth. We find that Jesus is dying then like a child would face bedtime, like a child would gently fall asleep in his father's arms. As Jesus took his dying breath, his final words were the prayer, a simple prayer he'd learned at his own bedside as just a young child. 
What Jesus is communicating here, is expressing, is absolute trust. It's complete confidence in a moment like this. He's facing death the way that many have faced bedtime throughout the ages. The very way that Jesus very well could have faced bedtime since just being a little boy each night. Jesus is now saying it again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, it's not the first time that, that Jesus, in a sense, will compare death to sleeping. It's something he's done before, you might remember it, where there's a little girl who's died, and, and there's no denying that she was dead, but when Jesus shows up, he tells them, clear the room, for she's not truly dead, she's only sleeping. It was because Jesus had confidence in God the Father's power that he declared that nothing was to fear because God could revive her. He could wake her. He was confident that she was still very much alive. She wasn't gone. And when you think about Jesus on the cross facing death, he has a confidence in this moment, in his completed work and in his promised destination that this is not the end for him. That like just a simple nap, he would rest and, and open his eyes in a different state, in a different place. And I think the invitation then is that you and I should view death like Jesus did, not being something that has to be feared any more categorically than just sleeping. Which means that we don't have to fear the possibility of death because of God's power to preserve our lives. But we also don't have to fear the reality of death itself because Jesus completed the work that was needed on the cross, crying out, it's finished, to make a way for us to have our place secure with God for eternity. It's been wisely said, and I love this, that God does not promise a calm passage through the pathway of death, but he does promise a safe landing. You see, you might not be certain or, or, or sure of how you will pass, of, of what it will be like when you die, but you can be certain of where you are arriving. You arrive in the arms of the one who promises that if trusted in life, that he will be there to receive you and greet you and embrace you in the hour of your death. You see, I think we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we can die as Jesus did in a full sense of confidence, in absolute assurance, in complete trust, in total peace as a child would lay down to sleep and calmly pray, into your capable, loving hands I commit my spirit. We, like Jesus, I think, can have confidence and peace and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, I'm coming home. See, because of the way that Jesus both spoke of death and faced it, historians tell us that the early church used to simply say goodnight rather than goodbye when another Christian would die, which is really beautiful. Because they had a confidence that there was never actually a real goodbye because it was not the end for them. The person that was passing away was simply closing their eyes in this life to open their eyes in the next one, free of pain and, and brokenness, to open their eyes in glory with Jesus. They didn't say goodbye. They simply would say goodnight. It's beautiful because that day will come for us too. And it can come with the confidence and the peace that Jesus expressed because of Jesus' finished work at the cross. Listen, because of that finished work at the cross, death is no longer my enemy, a wasted life is. Death is no longer my enemy, a wasted life is. Now, before we move on from this point, this first thing, because the other two will be much quicker, but before we move on from this, please, please hear me. 
there's something about Jesus' expression of trust that we need to not overlook. May I tell you that it's not just about how we die, but this expression of trust is really also about how we live. This isn't just into your hands I commit my spirit in our final breath, but it should be a daily expression that, Father, into your hands I'll give my life. In fact, Paul the Apostle would write that we are to give our lives to God as a living sacrifice, not just a dying one, not just a dead one, saying, God, I lived my life and and I'm gone, and so in this moment I'll hand it over to you. No, it's that every day as a living sacrifice, we give our lives to God, it says, because it is your reasonable service. It's translated your logical conclusion. That this is what God deserves because of what he gave for me, that I give him my life, not just in death, but I'm praying this in life. I mean, you might remember, like I do, the headlines and news stories from back at the end of February of this year. Just fast or rewind in your mind, go back to it for a moment, because our headlines back in February were dominated by news of Russia invading Ukraine with military forces. But there's one headline that came out a week into war that you might have caught. It, It caught my eye for sure. And it came out and the headline read that Christians and Jews in Ukraine pray together for God's protection. In fact, I'll quote to you from a couple of the articles that covered this story. One of them, and I quote, the chief rabbi in Ukraine invited Christians to join him in praying Psalm 31. Last week as the Russians began to invade their country, the deputy general secretary for the Bible Society in Ukraine also said, For me as a pastor, that psalm, well, I read it differently now because it's become about our current situation in Ukraine. This ancient prayer written several thousand years ago, now we see is so alive, it's living today. Again, another article, Jews and Christians prayed together for God's help and protection in basements and shelters throughout the country. They did so with the words of Psalm 31, what Jesus had quoted, which begins with, In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. It was beautiful as Jews and Christians joined together to pray an expression of hope and of trust just one week into a war that now has surpassed 150 days dragging on. There's a a beautiful and very moving video that we'll send you in this week's weekly email that was filmed by this Bible society in Ukraine all throughout the country. And some of the footage is, is filmed out in the countryside or even in city centers, but most of it is in basements and bomb shelters. And it's filming the people of Ukraine reading Psalm 31 together and praying by faith with hope that their God, whom they trust into your hands, we commit our spirit, will redeem us. See, please hear me. This is not just how faith prays in death. This is how faith is meant to pray in the dark. See, Oxford preacher and author in the 1800s, William Bright, he said, if we are with good confidence to commit the keeping of our souls to God as a faithful creator when we die, then we must do so while we live. You see, this is not just what faith prays in death. This is how faith can pray in the dark. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Will we, will you, will I say it and pray it every day? Because we ought to live as we desire to die. And we desire to die in complete peaceful confidence in his ability to keep us and to care for us. It's not just about the way that we die. This is about a way we can choose to live. 
I think most of those in Jesus' day who were present as his arms were outstretched and as he cries out and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I think most who were there knew these words well. These were nearly a lullaby, a child's simple bedtime prayer. What was heard and understood then in Jesus' statement was the dying man's last prayer of commitment, his last falling asleep. And of course, it was that, but it was also more than that. See, many who were present that day, they would have known the whole of the psalm well. And track with me, the whole of the psalm, it's worth you reading on your own this week. If your home groups are meeting, I'd tell you to read it in your home groups, but we'll save that for the fall. But this prayer in Psalm 31 was uttered by the persecuted rightful king of Israel, pleading with God to rescue him from his enemies and declaring in faith that God would, in fact, vindicate and deliver him. And there is Jesus before their eyes, crying out in confidence, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, with them knowing this is a claim to be the rightful king of our land and our people, whom God will be faithful to vindicate and deliver. Jesus, their persecuted king before them, not forsaken by God, but loved and embraced by the Father in that moment. That's what Jesus was communicating to them. Oh, my friends, this is not just how faith prays in death. This is how faith can pray in the dark, in the midst of dark moments and seasons in our lives. The statement by Jesus, it's an invitation for us to choose faith today in the one who loves us and gave himself for us, to choose faith today, not in some distant, disconnected God, but in a loving and present heavenly Father. It's calling us to daily surrender our lives to him to daily do that, to surrender our lives to him and say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's hard, isn't it? Like if we actually stop and think about it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's great if we're just gonna pray it as a cliche, but if we actually mean what we're saying and say, Father, today, into your hands, I'll give all that I am. It feels like a dangerous thing to say. It feels like a scary thing to say because self-sovereignty is the greatest form of modern idolatry. I mean, think about it. Self-sovereignty is quite possibly the most pervasive and deceptive form of modern idolatry. I say that because our culture will applaud it. Self-sovereignty, you are a self-made man or a self-made woman. You are the ideal and the goal. You did it. You've arrived. We applaud for you. Oh, our soul, it's not just our culture, but our soul craves it because we feel safe when we feel in control. The problem is, it's a facade of control. It's just that. It's a sham and a lie. Oh, it's a sham, and it's destructive. It's destructive to our own lives and the lives of others around us, because if you're living to find safety in your security, if you're living to be self-sovereign, you be king and God over your own life, if you're living that way, then you eventually find yourself, you use other people as scaffolding around you just to build your own life and identity so that you feel safe and secure. You're not just self-destructive. You're not destructive to others around you. And then it hits us in a moment. The thing that drove us in that direction was fear. That that we're fearful. That's why we long for control. That's why why self-sovereignty is so appealing. That's why we want to be the self-made man. That's why our soul craves it to feel safe and in control is because we're so very afraid. 
and we don't want to admit that life is outside of our control. But it's a crazy hard truth pill to swallow that the truth is our shifting economy is not the greatest threat to our sense of security. That the enemies that maybe our country has who are armed with warheads aren't the greatest threat to it either. Neither is my own health or health issues, nor is an employer who maybe you feel is unjustly set your ceiling too low. No, it's true that the greatest threat to our idolatrous lust for control and security may very, very well be God himself. Because he's asking for surrender, and that is a scary proposition. It feels like a threatening thing for our desire for control and security. Because I have to be willing to release the facade of control in order to submit and to actually surrender to him. You see, in order for me to pray in death or in life, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I have to let go of that facade and admit that I'm not in control and I'm doing a lousy job trying, but God, I'm willing to trust you. I mean, please, God, may it be the prayer of our hearts. Father, teach us to trust in you with a childlike faith in life, yes, and in death, that, that we could commit our body, our mind, our spirit, our family, our finances, our future into trustworthy and very capable hands. Listen, because we don't know what the day holds or what we'll experience, it always takes courage and faith to give what's most precious to us, which is our own lives, over to God. And the kind of courage and faith we need, I'm convinced, finds its roots only one place. And it's at the tree that Christ is dying on in this moment. The courage and faith we need to truly surrender only finds its roots in the old rugged cross itself. If we are to live a life where we give up this self-sovereignty ideal and goal, and we say instead we will live as a living sacrifice, trusting you not just in death but in life every day, saying into your hands I'll give all that I have and all that I am, Father, every day. We will only find the faith and courage to do this when we look towards a cross. You see, my friends, this statement by Jesus, I think it's inviting us to choose faith today in the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Choosing faith today, not in a distant God, but a God who's proving on a cross just how loving and present he is with us. So present that he'd suffer not just with us, but for us. See, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus' dying breath would be an expression of trust. But very quickly, the second thing, and it will be quick, these last two, is it gives an evidence of the truth. It was not just an expression of trust for Jesus to state this, but it also gave evidence of the truth. I mean, the timing of this moment, it was impeccable. It couldn't have been any better. It almost looks like there were some outside forces at work in the details, doesn't it? It almost looks as if God may have planned all of this. In fact, Scripture says since before the creation of the world, the Lamb was slain. God had preordained all of this. He knew what was coming. He had preset the whole game plan. Jesus, our Passover Lamb, on Passover at 3 p.m. is breathing his last breath, it tells us. Now, why is that important? Because it leaves us with incredible evidence of the truth. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, it tells the children of Israel when they observe Passover, when they were to sacrifice that lamb. And here's what it says. It says that you shall keep it, the lamb, until the 14th day of the same month, that's the month of Nisan, 
Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Twilight is literally between the evenings. To the Jews, that was between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. So track with me. Christ the Passover lamb, if you remember the old imagery in the Passover story, every home that had the blood of an innocent substitute and sacrifice applied to their homes, the judgment of God would pass over them. At 3 p.m., they'd begin that sacrifice where Jesus would become the ultimate sacrificial lamb dying in our place so that the judgment of God could pass over us. He was killed as the first of the lambs on that year's Passover celebration, right at 3 p.m., and was killed as forever the last sacrificial lamb that would ever be needed. And it's interesting, it tells us in the New Testament that not a bone of his was broken. Remember, they came even to break his legs, and then they realized he was already gone, and so instead they placed the spear, they thrust his spear through his side. Not a bone of his was broken. Yes, it was in fulfillment of prophecy, but think of the beautiful imagery there. I'm not a medical professional, but my archaic understanding of medicine, or at least of blood, is that blood is produced through bone marrow. And if a bone is broken, it no longer functions. So for every bone to remain intact, it still tells us, still speaks to us, that there is a flow of blood that's still being produced, that can still be produced. The imagery is that there's forgiveness still available, that it hasn't been exhausted yet. That there's grace that's yet to run out because it's an inexhaustible source that remained unbroken through the cross and all of his suffering and for all of the ages to come. That the lifeblood of Jesus that covers our sin remains a fresh flow of blood in order to continue to cover our sins. You see, in this moment when Jesus expired, when he died, God didn't just make sure that it happened precisely at 3 p.m. when the evening sacrifice would begin but God gave additional proof that Jesus was who he said he was that Matthew's gospel records for us. In Matthew 27, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, this moment, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and rocks were split and graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. I mean, did you catch what just happened? Because this is not just a fable. This is an account of a real event in history. That in that moment, as Jesus breathes his last, there's an earthquake that's so intense that that rocks are split open and graves because of that are opened up with the, the rocks that once enclosed those tombs. It wasn't just that it broke them open, but what it would reveal as Christ would three days later rise from the dead is that with him, that other people who had faithfully followed their God, believing in the coming Messiah, that they would also emerge from the grave coming back to life which we don't even know what to to picture or how to process some of that. In fact, in the words of commentator A.W. Pink, he said it this way. He says, the graves were open, showing that the power of Satan, which is death, was there shivered and shattered at the cross. And then it tells you not about an earthquake and, and, and the rising from the dead of these men and these women, but it tells you then that the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Why the detail the top? to the bottom because men didn't stand at the bottom and tear it towards the top. It was heaven itself reaching down and tearing it. That massive veil that was inside of the temple. It's 3 p.m. at Passover. The temple would have looked like Christmas Eve, 
being at the mall pre-COVID. So pre-COVID picture, remember the days when uh, on Christmas Eve, the mall was a zoo. And this massive veil, this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, God's, God's private dwelling place from where the people could come and gather to worship. That veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. One commentator writes this, uh, quoting historians, that the temple veils were 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and the thickness of that veil was as thick as the palm of a man's hand, about four inches thick. They were so heavy that, that we're told by historians that it needed 300 priests to lift them up high enough to hang them in their place. The historian Josephus from the first century, he said that the veil was four inches thick and was renewed every year and that horses tied to either side of it could not pull it apart and rip it. And yet when Jesus died, the massive veil in the temple that separated the dwelling place of God from the common man, it was torn in two from the top to the bottom, something that a man could not do, something that only God could do and did do. God was removing, don't miss this, the separation between God and man, which is exactly what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Allowing for once again, man to have unbroken relationship with God because now sin is removed out of the equation for those who place their faith in Jesus. It was as if in this moment when that curtain tore, as if heaven itself shouted at the earth that I will no longer be separated from mankind. Mankind that I have created and loved and now have redeemed with the precious blood of my son. In that moment, God's spirit burst out of the temple, never again to be separated from mankind. Ripping the veil from the top to the bottom was something only that God could do, and it indicated that God was deserting the temple because God would no longer be confined to dwell in a temple made with hands. But if you know the Bible, you know that it says that there is a mystery that was hidden from the ages, and that mystery is that Christ is in you. You know, it's one of my favorite places to go in Israel is to the Western Wall. It's not even the part of the temple itself. It's just the wall that's the retaining wall that held the temple mount in place and the temple set just atop it. But you go to that Western wall and there's people from all over the world speaking every language you can imagine. You, you just watch it and with such dedication, they travel all the way there in order to get close enough to the place that the presence of God once dwelt inside of the Holy of Holies, behind that veil, veiled and cloaked, hidden, separated from humanity. And they want to get as close as they can just to place a prayer in between the crevices of those rocks. Because they believe that if I can just get to, close to the place where God once dwelt, then maybe he'll hear me. Behold the mystery hidden from the ages, that Christ is in you and he is your hope of glory, Paul wrote to the church in Colossians. The beauty is that you don't need to travel to a geographic place in order for God to hear you or to be near enough to have a confidence that he's attentive to you. No, God, is a, he vacated the temple because he'd no longer be separated from mankind because my sin has been removed because of my faith in Jesus and what Jesus did on my behalf. God now lives by his spirit inside of me. It's this beautiful, profound, massive truth. Oh, there is a powerful thing that happens in this final moment as Jesus breathes his last, where God gives evidence of the truth. We're at creation. There's six days to create, and then he rests. And at redemption, at his crucifixion, it'd be six hours of agony, and then he would breathe his last and enter into rest. In Egypt, it was three days of darkness, whereas there's about three hours of 
of darkness and judgment being poured out on the cross. With Jesus, three hours of darkness in about three days in the grave he will spend before he brings about salvation for humanity. There was supernatural light at his birth and supernatural darkness at his death. And Eden itself, the pinnacle of God's creation, the one who he made in his own image would rebel. And because they rebelled and brought sin into God's perfect, beautiful creation, it would corrupt it and bring with it, track with me, it would bring with it a curse. And the sign of that curse, it tells you is thorns, and it tells you would be agony when bringing about new life, pain in childbirth. And now Jesus, the Prince of Heaven himself, would be crowned with a crown of thorns. He would preside on a cross as if a king on a throne, the king of the curse, his life, his head, bearing a crown of thorns while in great agony and pain, he's bringing about new life and birthing a new family in that moment. God brings a, such clarity in this moment. He, he's putting an exclamation point behind the statement of who Jesus was and what Jesus was accomplishing. He gives us incredible evidence that Jesus was who he said he was in this final breath. Oh, this moment, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's an expression of trust. It gives evidence of the truth. But the, the last thing is that it leaves us with an example of love in contrast to revenge. It leaves us with an otherworldly example of love in contrast to revenge. Now, I don't want to go into this too deeply, but I will tell you, I love a good revenge scene. Like, I don't know what it is, but there, there, this morning, even thinking about this, there are so many movies I started thinking of with all these revenge scenes. Someone hurts the kids. The guy hunts them all down. If you've seen Taken, he finally gets his daughter's captor, and he, like, plugs them into some funky electricity, an old French house and this chateau, and he's like, well, it's low voltage. What that means is you're in a bit of water, and it's going to conduct current through you, and it's going to slowly bake your insides, and that's horrendous when you just say it. But if you watch that scene, you'd be like me. You'd be like, yeah, bake them. <laughs> like there's, there's something in us, the broken us, or maybe just me, that reads the Psalms. And when David's like, I pray God that you'd break their teeth in their mouth when he's praying for his enemies. I'm like, I like it. Sign me up. I have those moments too. I like that David felt like he could share anything, then everything he felt and thought. If God already knows it, he knows that I feel this way, not, why not just voice it? I know it sounds weird coming out of my mouth, but you know, break their teeth in their mouth. I remember hearing a story years ago of these three bikers who were part of the Hell's Angels gang, and, and they showed up at a truck stop, and, and there's a truck driver seated at the counter at this diner, and, and the Hell's Angels came in and start to mess with this older truck driver. And and one of them, it's knocking his OJ on his lap. Another one, it's pouring a cup of coffee on his head. And then finally, it's breakfast straight on the chest. And the guy, without a word, finally stands up and walks out. And as he does, one of the bikers yells, not much of a man. And the waitress shortly thereafter responded and said, he's not much of a truck driver either. He just backed over three motorcycles in the front lot. <laughs> See, you judged me. You judged me and look at you. Shame on you. You know, there's something about it that we love and, and it feels right to us. It makes it that much more otherworldly, doesn't it? That this is how God responds. I mean, we love revenge. People getting what they have coming to them. People getting what they deserve. But it's not the case in Jesus' story. It wasn't the way that he chose to react. Though he would have been justified more than anyone else ever, ever in human history. 
Instead, when we find Jesus going to a cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In fact, I told you Greek linguist Dr. Weiss, he points out, he says that the way that sentence is structured, it's to imply to the reader that it's something that Jesus said again and again. As they whipped him, Father, forgive them. As they forced him to carry the cross, Father, forgive them. As they mocked him when his strength failed him and he collapsed, Father, forgive them. As they nailed him to it, as they placed him upright and the weight of his body sagged down on those nails, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do is what they heard him saying. Jesus had told Peter when he was in the garden that I could call down 12 legions of angels from my father and they would come down to my side. Do you remember in the Old Testament when one angel wiped out 144,000 Assyrians? What could 12 legions of angels do? Do you remember in Acts 12 when an angel comes and, and touches Herod and when he does, it says he's eaten alive by worms? I mean, what kind of a scene could this have been where Jesus is like, you know what, I've had enough. This is it for me. I put my foot down here. But Jesus doesn't. He didn't do it. He doesn't respond with revenge. He embodies what the New Testament will teach us in Romans 12, where it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you understand that the cross doesn't just display the vile, heinous, awful nature of my rebellion and broken, sinful heart? But do you understand that it also lets me see the beauty of the love of God being expressed in a moment like this? Jesus' words, they echo to be heard over us today, and they do not merely speak about trusting in death. but They're calling us uh, to have surrender in life to the one who loved us like this. This was not merely how Jesus died. Father, into your hands I commit myself. This is how he lived. In a constant state of faith and trust in his Father, trust in his plan and his ability to carry out that plan and in his care and character that the plan would be good because he's good. He lived with this as a motto, with a, a daily positioning of his life being built on the prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, today I place myself in your hands, wanting to fulfill your purpose. Father, I trust you. And can we echo that sentiment? You know, one of the crucial things that would be foolish if we overlooked it about this moment where Jesus is on the cross is that at the moment of his death, no one but Jesus perceived the faithfulness of God at work. No one but Jesus perceived the faithfulness of God present and at work in this moment. It's been said because of that, that this moment shows us that God can be acting most faithfully in the moments when it appears he's not being faithful at all. And I recently came across the words in a, a book I was reading of a father who lost his only son to a rare disease when his son was in his 20s. And out of his great grief, this bereaved father, he wrote these words. He said, the Christian life, my Christian life is lived between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think for us, so much of the time we find us be ourselves between those two realities. But do we, can we relate to God as a beloved child or do we feel like we see ourselves simply as an abandoned and forsaken castaway? 
It was not Jesus' external, visible circumstances that proved which one he was, either abandoned or beloved. For he looked in this moment on a cross, arms outstretched, bleeding out in this shameful way, dying. He looks hopeless and helpless. It seems in this moment purposefulness, and yet Christ cries out in victory, knowing that that's not the case, because there was a good father with an eternal plan that was working. And for us... We don't look to our outward circumstances to find our identity. And the answer to that question of where do we find ourselves as a beloved child or a castaway? No, we look towards a cross, his cross, and an empty tomb where he demonstrated once and for all just how deeply he has loved us and how much he's longed to call us his children once again. That's where we look. This is where we take ourselves when we live in the tension of being between those two worlds, of feeling forsaken, and at the same time wanting to trust ourselves and entrust all that we are into his hand. Oh, living in that tension, the only place, the only place we can look to find our true identity is we look back to the cross. The only place we find the roots of the faith and confidence we need are found in the cross. The only place to look is to look back to a, a comforting embrace that we receive because of the cross. Because we find our confidence there in his love and commitment to us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating the love of God for us once and for all. My friends, this is the direction we look. We don't judge God's love for us based on our circumstances. No, we learn to judge our circumstances based upon the proven love of God for us that was proven on a cross. We look towards a cross. Let me close, close by just quoting to you from this old Greek hymn that the church has sung for centuries. And about 200 years ago, a man translated it from Greek to English. Let me just quote it to you. He said, let thy blood in mercy poured, let thy gracious body broken, be to me, O gracious Lord, of thy boundless love the token. Thou didst die that I might live. Blessed Lord, thou camest to save me. All that love of God could give, Jesus by his sorrows gave me. Now didst give myself for me. Now I give myself to thee. By the thorns that crowned thy brow, by the spear wound and the nailing, by the pain and death, I now claim, O Christ, thy love is unfailing. Thou didst give thyself for me. Now I give myself to thee. Jesus, as we finish now this series, looking at the cross, Jesus, our response is what this is all about. A response that looks at the beauty of your love contrasted against the brokenness of our world and of our own lives. A beautiful love that's worth admiring, a beautiful love that's worth trusting. Jesus, you did give your life for us. And after looking at a cross for these several weeks, Jesus, we look your direction and say, we have but one response, and it's to give our lives back to you. To say, Father, into your hands we commit all that we are.
not just in death, but even in the dark, even in the hard moments. Jesus, we trust you. And God, for anyone who comes here today, Jesus, my heart's desire is that they would choose that kind of faith, a faith really that I believe only finds its power and life source in the cross itself. Jesus, I pray, though, for those who are hurting and overwhelmed who are in the dark today, that, God, you'd breathe the life of your spirit into them. God, have mercy and be present. The God who's near the brokenhearted, be near them. But as they look to a cross today, breathe life back into them, wind into their sails. The God who would not abandon us in the greatest storm, a storm of cosmic justice, would not abandon us in the smaller storms of life. God, we believe that. So Jesus, we look your direction today and we thank you. God, we look towards heaven and we worship you, the God who would come and become breakable and broken on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.